As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honour of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Hello there, we're continuing our Relational Wisdom series. And today, the key question I suppose that we're asking is, how can we get along with other people if ethically or morally they're not on the same page as we are? See, issues of morality often can get in the way of our relationships, whatever type of relationship they, that might be. Let me give you a, a few examples. You know, um, politically, maybe you're at one end of a spectrum, maybe you're more politically left-wing. Can you have a friendship with someone who is politically right-wing or the other way around? Is that going to get in the way? And, and if you find that your friend is on the other end of the spectrum, what do you do about that? Do you just ignore the subject altogether or do you just sort of thrash it out and hope that your friendship survives? What about whether you should go out with or even marry someone who is maybe very passionate about ethical issues or environmental issues, for example? Maybe you're um, more indifferent about it. Is that relationship going to work if you're not on the same page? Or what about maybe uh, someone in your wider family, or maybe a brother or a sister, and the way that they're behaving or relating to other people, you just think is not good. They're acting immorally, perhaps. Should you, should you challenge them? And, and if you do, are you saying you're morally a superior? Should you judge others or just let everyone do what they want to do? You see, morality can get into our relationships in this way. Now, you might think if you're kind of looking into uh, Christianity, looking into this uh, church kind of stuff, that you might think, well, surely all the Christians, they, they probably don't have this issue as much because they follow the Bible and therefore they're always on the same page about everything. Oh, that it were so. Now, there are plenty ethical um, questions and issues of morality that Christians disagree with as well. And I was thinking this week of different topics, different questions that I could ask that might split our church and have hundreds on one side and hundreds on the other. So this is, here's a few. Here's, here's the list that I've come up with. wonder what you think about these. 
Is it morally wrong to smoke? Is it morally wrong to work in a pub? Is it morally wrong to vote for the Green Party? Or is it morally wrong to vote for the Conservative Party? Is it morally wrong to eat meat that you know is unethically sourced? Is it morally wrong to support Palace? There might be many other questions that would divide our congregation. Maybe you listen to those questions and you think, oh, the answer's quite obvious. Well, maybe you'll go to your small group this week and find someone who thinks the answer's obvious as well, but is on the other side uh, of, of, the, of the issue. Now, these things divide us sometimes and that can affect our relationships. And one of the reasons for that is because, of course, the Bible gives us wisdom, wisdom from God. And that's what we've been doing in this series, looking at this wisdom. But it doesn't always give us specific examples. Well, how do we navigate those things and how do we relate to others if they come to a different conclusion than we do? We've got God's wisdom. And we've also got a conscience. We've got a sense of what we think is right or wrong. So how do those things interact? Because sometimes our conscience leads us to one conclusion and we find that someone else is led by their conscience and doesn't agree. What do we do with that? Well, this is an issue in relationships, both outside and within the church. And one of the dynamics is that actually it's always been an issue within the church. And we even see that in the Bible and the passage that we've just heard from Romans 14 kind of highlights one of those issues. And so what we're going to do, we're going to try our best to understand what's going on here and draw out some principles that are going to be helpful to us. Because what we have in this passage is a description of a church community and there were kind of two camps going on. They disagreed of how they should behave, even though they were kind of united in their faith, but the application of it, there was difference. And the, the writer of the letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul, is helping them to sort of reconcile how to live together even though they disagree and pointing them to Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do today. The first thing we need to do though is to understand something of the specifics of what they are facing and the issue, which is not directly relevant, but there's some principles uh, that we can uh, glean from it as well. So what's going on in the passage that we just heard from Romans 14? Well, really there's, there was two camps there was the, the freedom-loving camps and camp, and there was the more sort of conscience camp. I'm going to call them like that. That's the, that's the sort of two contrasting opinions. And where does this come out of? Is well, um, as many of you all know, Christianity is kind of born out of Judaism. Jesus was a Jew. He was part of that community. And if you know what's in the Bible, the Old Testament has many, many different laws, customs, traditions, things that God told this Jewish people to obey and to follow that would mark them out as God's people. Now, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus comes onto the scene. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. And I suppose one of the things that perhaps some people in this Jewish community were expecting is that the Saviour would help them to fulfill these standards that God had set for them. But one of the, th the things that Jesus actually came to show and demonstrate and teach people and point them to was actually they don't need a coach. What they need is much greater than that. They don't need a coach to help them to meet these moral standards of God. They need a Saviour. Someone who's going to meet them uh, where they're at in their failure to live up to God's standards and save them and bring forgiveness and bring healing and reconcile them to God. 
And that's what we see in the life of Jesus, that he comes into the world and lives a perfect life, lives up to the moral standard of God on every single way, the way that we couldn't do, no human person could do, but only Christ, the God made human can. And he lives that life, but yet dies a lawbreaker's death, dies a sinner's death so that anyone who puts their trust in him can receive his perfect record of morality and receive the forgiveness of sin, the ways that we've fallen short. And that is the great news of the gospel. That's a wonderful truth that Jesus is a savior. He doesn't come to condemn, he comes to give life and forgive. And so this community that is described here, many of whom were Jewish, but they've all received Christ. But the question comes, well, if Christ has freed us from this moral obligation, this standard of law that we're never going to keep, Jesus has fulfilled it for us. He's freed us. And Paul's already written earlier on in Romans chapter 8, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. We're free. We're free. We receive the grace of God in Christ. The question comes, well, how do we live now? What do we do? If we're completely forgiven, does it matter what we do? And specifically for these people, it was, they were considering, well, all these things that we've been doing all our lives that God told us to do, and in this case, eating, not eating certain foods, should we continue to do that? We know Jesus has freed us, but should, should we just carry on doing that anyway? And as I say, some were quick to embrace the freedom and say, no, we don't need to follow them anymore. And the other camp was thinking, well, no, our conscience says, well, we should still, even though we have Christ, we should not eat those foods because it's, we just find it, that's not something we can do. How do those groups reconcile? Who's right and who is wrong? Well, for us, we have those questions as well. How should we live? Even if we received Christ, how should we live? Should we just do whatever we want and totally embrace freedom? If Christ has forgiven me, I can do whatever, surely, can I? And there's others that say, well, no, no, there's still things that are right, the right thing to do. We should be careful to follow them. And so we have this contrast between freedom and conscience. So what we're going to do is going to consider those two sides of it for a few minutes now. Firstly, then, freedom. If you're from a Western background, you're probably instinctively, if you're reading this passage, going to um, go on the side of the, the freedom embraces. Because a city like ours, perhaps, is one that loves freedom. It's one of the most strongest values. It celebrates all the time the freedom to be who we want to be, express ourselves in the way we want to express ourselves. In one sense, you could say the biggest celebration that happens every year in this city is to, all to do with freedom. We can do what we want. We can be who we want. We can love who we want. That is what our city loves to celebrate. And so we're quick to embrace freedom, perhaps. Well, as I've already said, the gospel of Jesus is a gospel of freedom. Yes, Jesus has come to free us from guilt, free us from sin. And we should be quick to embrace that and not hesitate to embrace that. And so in one sense, the first thing I want to say is that we, we should be embracing freedom. If you're a Christian and you're bound by guilt. There's fear in your life, and you, every day you're suffering under guilt and fear, then you've missed the gospel. 
you've missed what Jesus has, has done because he's come to bring freedom. There's no condemnation in Christ. Yes, I've not met God's perfect standard, but Christ has met it for me and my faith is in him. And I'm free from condemnation. I'm free. So that's gospel freedom. But it's important that we don't just detach gospel freedom just to freedom in general. And that is what a city like ours does all the time. Freedom in and of itself is not something that is going to give us everything that we need. Uh, But so often we live in a society that suggests that it is. Let me give an example just to illustrate what I'm talking about here. Imagine, cast your mind back to a time where you can sit in a restaurant. Feels like a long time ago now, I know. But you're sitting in a restaurant, a great restaurant, a restaurant that you love, and you get the menu and there's all these different options here. And you say what is often said in great restaurants, oh, it all looks good. That's what people say. Some of you think this is a good thing because you think, well, whatever I choose, I'm going to enjoy. I can't possibly go wrong here because all the options are good. That's a great thing. I've got freedom to choose and I'm always going to choose something good. Some of us are slightly hesitant on this. It's not quite as good thing as it might uh, first appear. Because instead of saying, there's so many good options, I can't possibly go wrong. Some of us think, there's so many good options, I'm inevitably not going to choose the best one. And even if we enjoy our meal, we're thinking, maybe I should have gone for that option instead. Maybe I would enjoy that one more. And so our enjoyment is slightly curtailed by the fact that we could have chosen something else. Freedom actually has some problems to it. And that sounds like a, a silly example, but I think in some ways that's what happens in our society all the time. And I think particularly uh, to do with the, sort of the messages that people who are, especially those who are young in our society get. Because we're constantly giving them the message of, you have opportunity. You can be who you want to be. You can live the way you want to live. It's all about how you want to express yourself. You have more opportunity than any generation before you. You've got access to information that no generation before has. And so do what you want. This is great, isn't it? Well, yes, okay. To have freedom is better than not to have freedom. But what is also happening is that we have so many options. We feel so empowered. When we start choosing options of how to live, what career to have, what relationships uh, to get involved in, that sort of thing. If it doesn't work out, if it doesn't give us the happiness or peace or satisfaction that we thought it might do, Really, we've only got ourselves to blame because after all, we chose the options that we have in life. We are empowered to do so. So actually, freedom can be quite problematic in that way. And that's why we live in a society that so loves freedom, but also has almost epidemic levels of anxiety and depression because we so, feel so empowered and we're told we can do whatever we want. And then when it doesn't, give us the things that we thought it would and we look around and say, oh, what are they doing? Did I choose the wrong option? Am I not as good as they are even though I was empowered to make... No, freedom, when we pursue it selfishly, it's not not actually life-giving. It doesn't actually reward us the, the way we think it will. And that's a message to our city, but it's also a message to those who are Christian as well. If you're adopting this attitude of, well, 
I have Christ now, I can do what I want. Well, pursuing freedom selfishly is still gonna be problematic for you. So, on the other hand then, if we've got freedom and it's got its drawbacks, well, should we just go to the other extreme? Should we just go to the restrictive and uh, conscience-driven uh, mentality? You know, when it comes to moral issues, should we just side with the people that are most conservative, perhaps? Maybe that's the way, that's the way to live. Well, conscience and just being led by our conscience and just being playing it safe all the time, has got some problems as well. What is conscience anyway? And why does it lead us to choose a decision and someone else, their conscience leads them somewhere else? Well, I think from a Christian perspective, we definitely see that the fact that we have a conscience, we have a sort of innate sense of right and wrong, that is something that is God-given. That is something that is good. But the Bible story is one that all of us have been affected by the disease of sin that's come into the world through humanity's turning away from God. And so even though we have a sense of right and wrong, that has been distorted by what the Bible calls sin. And so we have to be careful not to trust our conscience implicitly and think, well, it's, it's from God, therefore we can't go wrong if we just follow our conscience. Well, actually what we find is that our consciences are not perfect. And actually, they need to be trained. They need to be informed by God's word. Let me just give you a quick example from a conversation I, just, I had this week. Uh, I was speaking to someone and they were saying that uh, so recently they had, uh, had occasion to correct someone, to challenge them on their behavior, and they um, corrected them strongly. They, they felt that was the right thing to do, but after they had done it, they kind of felt bad. They felt, oh, have I, have I done the right thing? They were troubled by it. And then a few weeks ago, um, some of you, you will know, I, I brought some of the Bible's teaching on the topic of rebuke. And this is what God's wisdom is on this topic. And actually they said to me that when they heard that, when they heard what the Bible had to say about rebuke, actually they felt a, a lot more peace. They felt, oh, actually, no, I, I don't need to be troubled by this because this is what God's word says. What's the point there? The point is that our conscience and the way we feel about things is not always going to match up to what is right. No, both of those things need to be informed by God's word. That's much more important. And that is the, 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 uh, the factor that should steer our decision and steer our thinking even. Another aspect when it comes to these decisions is the fact that if we're a Christian, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works in us. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit does, God come to be within us, is to, to guide us, is to help us, is to prompt us to what's, to what's right. So not only does a Christian have a conscience, they also have the work of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes when we're working out how to sort of navigate these ethical or moral questions in our lives and decisions, sometimes we think, well, I feel that like this is what God has said. And even we might go as far as to say, well, no, God has told me this, therefore this is the right way to go. And other people are like, oh, well, God's not told me that. <laughs> how, do you, how do you get along? Do you agree? Do you let them do it? Or do you just have to go along with what someone says? Because God said. Well, again, let's be careful with that. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit 
working within us. But the Bible also says uh, in 1 Corinthians 13 that we know from the Holy Spirit in part. We prophesy in part. That's what uh, verse verse 9 of chapter 13 says. Our interpretation of the Holy Spirit within us is not infallible. And so we must be careful, especially when we're disagreeing with others, that we don't think, well, I know because God has said, well, no, what God has said is clear in his word, in the Bible. And we have, need to be careful and have some humility. And at best we can say, I think this is the way that, that God has prompted me, the Holy Spirit has prompted me to make this decision or, 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 or take this, come to this conclusion. And we admit that we might, we might have got that wrong. And so it's important that even though we have the Holy Spirit, we still listen to others. We're still careful to look in God's word to what he says and and have that sense of humility. And that's one of the things that Paul is pointing to in this passage. He's warning both sides, whichever opinion people take, have some humility. Don't be quick to despise others who disagree with you or be judgmental towards them. Yes, we have Christ. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit. But don't use that as an excuse to just be dismissive or judgmental towards others. No, no, the gospel actually humbles us. The gospel actually makes us recognise that we're not infallible. We get things wrong and we need help, the help of God, the help of one another to come to good decisions as well. So there's problems with pursuing freedom as the answer. There's problems with seeking moralism and just obeying our conscience. Because on one hand, the freedom can lead us into selfishness, really. And on the other hand, pursuing moralism as the answer can, well, will lead us into self-righteousness. The fact that we think we're right and everyone else is therefore wrong. So what is, what is the way? What is the way forward with these things? Well, if one leads to selfishness and one leads to self-righteousness, the answer, according to Paul, is to remove self altogether and replace self with Christ. That's what he says in verse seven here. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we live, we live to the Lord. And when I read this, it reminded me of something specific that Jesus said. It sounds very similar in Matthew 16. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this is the, one of the paradoxes of the gospel. That as we come to Christ, as we put our faith in him, we think, oh, I'm, I'm giving up my freedom. I'm giving up my opinions. I have to follow Christ. Okay, but we get Christ and we realise we get everything else with him. We put him first and actually the life that he leads us into is much more life-giving, much more joy-filled, much more full of peace and satisfaction than we could ever achieve on our own. So what does that look like in practice? It's very easy to say, well, Christ is the answer. But what does that look like? Well, Paul gives us some clues here. And it's a lot to do with living with thanksgiving to God. How do we navigate ethical questions and disagreements with other people? Well, we make sure thanksgiving to Christ is at the center of our decision making and at the center of our lives. That's what he says in verse six there. He says, 
Well, if you're pursuing freedom, well, make sure it's gospel freedom, but also the one who eats, he says in verse six, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. It's about thanksgiving to God. On the other hand, the one who abstains, it also said in verse six there, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. It's about thanksgiving to God. So how should we live? Well, we should understand the word of God, understand the grace of God and live with thanksgiving to God. Before I finish it out, I just wanna demonstrate, I suppose, what that looks like in, in practice. It's a simple, simple truth, live in thanksgiving to God in relationship with him. But how does that ground out in these questions that we're thinking about? Well, let me return to those questions now. How does this play out? Well, let's consider that friend with different political views from us. How, how, how do we navigate that? Well, if we have Christ, then he is the most important. Our lives, our opinions are not the most important thing. Christ is the most important. And that gives us humility in those types of conversations. It's not all about me. I'm not gonna, I don't have to die on a hill politically because Christ has died on a hill for me already. He is the one that has brought me freedom. And so of course, yeah, it's not wrong. It's a good thing to have strong political opinions perhaps, but they're not the thing that, um, control our lives completely. No, Christ does. And it gives me humility to listen to others. And again, with thanksgiving, can I thank God for this friend, even though they disagree with me? Well, enjoy that relationship with them with thanksgiving. Let that be what uh, steers your thinking there. Can I thank God for them? Similarly, with Romantic relationships, perhaps. You might find you're on the different, a different page to someone else and you think, well, is this relationship gonna work? Well, again, if you are united in Christ, if for both of you, he is the most important one in your lives, then even if you disagree of other things, there can be reconciliation and there can be a way of moving forward together because fundamentally Christ is the one that you're both following. So those uh, things can be worked out. And again, with maybe someone that you know, a family member who's, in your opinion, acting immorally. How is this ground out there? Well, again, we check ourselves. We're humble enough to, is my opinion of what, how people should behave? Has that been shaped by the Bible? We, we check that. We're humble in that. And then if we do feel it's the right thing to do, to, to challenge and to, to correct, we do it in a gospel-shaped way. We do it out of love for someone else. We care about them and so we want to bring something of what we feel that the, the Bible says is true to, to, to help them, to be beneficial with them. And we, we thank God for his wisdom and we thank God for that relationship as well. And so in all these things, maybe there's moral questions that you have in your life and that's a, a guiding principle. Can you thank God for this? This, this, this thing, should I do that, should I not? Well, well, can you thank God for it? Can you receive it with thanksgiving and praise to Jesus? Is it about him or is it about your selfish pleasure at the expense of Christ? That is a helpful way of thinking about it. But let me draw things to a close here. Because yes, there are practical considerations. 
But let's not lose sight of the fact that Christ has come to bring us this freedom. We, the only way we can live in thanksgiving to God is because we have been reconciled to God. That relationship has been achieved for us by Christ. So I want to end on that note. If we live, we live to the Lord. Is that where you're at today? Maybe there are ways in which you, you've realised even today, no, I, actually, I, I am living for my selfish agenda and not for Christ. Or maybe you're thinking, actually, I'm living, yeah, with, with guilt and fear. Every choice I make, every decision, it's, 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 there's guilt and there's fear there. Well, come to Christ. Come to Christ. He's freed you from that. Receive the love of God for you. Of course, it's important to get this relationship right with one another, but it comes from having that relationship with God, first of all. That is the epitome of relational wisdom in this series. We don't need a coach to help us get better at things. No, we need a saviour and Christ is that saviour and we can come to him today. Amen.